Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind or attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And being in the form of God, not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 10 says, Every knee should bow. This Philippians 2, 10 and 11, the end of that passage, speaks of a day when every knee of all created beings will bow to Jesus Christ as Lord. Not all willingly, some will be forced to bow. That will not be a day of salvation. It will be a day of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the beginning of eternal judgment and eternal reward. Everyone will bow then. But my message tonight to us is bow to him now. Let's worship the Lord before we're seated. Hallelujah. 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 Since your presence so strong here, Lord. Amen. <clears throat> Praise God. God bless you. Please be seated. <clears throat> I think I could give an altar call now. We would all come. Teaching on the principle, the biblical principle of submission to the authority of God. But I want to make it clear that everyone must be under authority. And true authority comes from being under authority. I'm not teaching today about my authority. I'm teaching on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But I feel like it's important for you to know that I try to practice what I preach of being a man under authority and seek counsel. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Our board, our pastoral team, and ministerial brothers that are, not, there's not a lot of people a lot older than me nowadays, so some of them are my peers, but I believe it's important for you to understand that I, I know the importance of being under authority. For the last several months before I come to the pulpit, I've just been praying, Lord, I want you to know that I submit myself, I humble myself under the mighty hand of God. I want to be a man under authority. Last week, I taught on the subject, not my will, from the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke twenty-two forty-two, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So I want to take just a few minutes, maybe a little longer than normal, to review what I taught last week. First of all, I taught that the essence of sin is self-will, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. 
and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. I talked about the progressive nature of sin, that sin originates with self-will, this autonomy of demanding my own way that then leads to rebellion against the authority of God and resisting the will of God. Ultimately, it leads to unrighteousness or sinful behaviors that starts with self-will, leads to rebellion against God, and that it always plays out with, uh, with unrighteous acts. Have you ever noticed that most sinful behavior has an addictive nature to it? It brings you under the power of that sinful behavior, regardless of whether it is chemical, psychological, emotional, physiological, it brings you under that power, amen? So it's important to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. I spoke about Satan's five I wills in Isaiah 14. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will, Satan said, ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like or equal to the most high. Now, I asked this question last, last week. I've been thinking about this. How does an angel become a devil? You know, he was the covering cherub, and I'm not going to go back and review all that I said about him from the Bible, but when self-will took over his will, when he decided that he would exalt himself against the lordship of Almighty God, then there was iniquity found in his heart. We don't know if it was an overnight process. We don't know if he did go around spreading gossip on God and seduce a third of the angels to go with him. However that happened, it seems to have happened. But when God saw this iniquity or crookedness or perverseness in him that he went astray, he went from being the covering cherub, an angel, to the devil, lifted up in pride, full of himself. Ezekiel 28 says that he was cast out as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. So I was thinking on this. I went back to my file that has series of messages in it. And back in February of 2020, uh, there are several messages that were taught uh, on this theme. Brother Jury taught on Feb February 5th, 2020, on this theme, to obey is better. And I'm saying that because if you want to go back and study more biblical principles of authority, you can go back there. On the 12th of February, 2020, I taught on the wisdom of submission. And uh, there are similarities in that message to last week. And if I would have gone back and read those notes, it could have saved me a lot of time last week, but I didn't. And then on the 19th of February, 2020, I taught on understanding authority. And then on a Sunday, February 23rd, 2020, I spoke on the struggle for spiritual authority, Jacob and Esau wrestling, and then finally Jacob wrestling with God. So if you want to go back, if you want to study more, that's what you can do. But today, I want to focus on Philippians 3 and 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth. Now, when I was 18 years old, I went on a mission trip to Korea, and I saw those people bowing. In some cultures, especially in Eastern cultures, bowing is a common practice. Bowing or stooping, lowering your torso and head it's a way of showing honor. 
And it's really more detailed than we know about who is bowing to whom and if it is a, just a mutual respect between peers or bowing to a person in authority or bowing to an elder. It's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of nuances to bowing and understanding the culture in which you're operating. Otherwise, you might shake hands with a person instead of bowing to them. And you might bow to a person when you should not bow to them in diplomatic situations. And among aristocracy in European countries, there's also bowing. But there's a biblical history of bowing uh, that we find in the Bible. There are several words in the Hebrew and at least one in the Greek that have this word bow. Now, if you're doing a word search, you're probably going to find a lot of scriptures about a bow that you shoot, not bow that you do. There's a Hebrew word, the transliteration would be K-A-R-A. It's used about 30 times in the Bible. It's a verb. It means bowing or falling down at the knees. And it can refer to this literally or metaphorically, that you have a heart that is reverent or bowing in humility. Uh, the word bow down is found in a lot of contexts, including bowing down to God, bowing down to idols, bowing to angels, and even bowing to people that you would see as superior or an elder. All of those examples are in the Bible. Sometimes uh, it's prostration, falling flat on your face. In, in the Bible, when Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple, he knelt before the Lord. First Kings 8.54 says that when Solomon made an end of his prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. Here is Solomon, this wise king, on his knees kneeling before God with his hands outstretched to heaven. It was a physical posture symbolic of the condition of his heart. I mentioned that this is a social greeting and to angels and even someone that is showing submission, even in uh, enslavement to someone who has captured you. But it expresses deep respect and reverence to the person that you are bowing to. At the dedication of the first temple, I referred to Solomon, but in 2 Chronicles 7, 3, it describes the worship of the people. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. In the New Testament, when Paul was praying his famous prayer, a prayer that I love very much for the Ephesian Christians, Ephesians 3.14, Paul said, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So I wanted you to see a little bit of a biblical background about this practice of bowing your knee to someone that you revere and especially bowing to God in worship. Now our text, Philippians 2, is really begins in verse 1 with a teaching on humility between people in the body of Christ. Philippians 2.1. If, there, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, 
if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels or heart and mercies fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, something to exalt yourself, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. This is the attitude that should be in the body of Christ. Now, we don't look down on anyone. There's a phrase you've heard about holier than thou that's actually in the Bible that some people think that they are holier than someone else. Let nothing be done by strife or vainglory. Verse 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, just in case you want to twist this verse, it doesn't mean be nosy. It doesn't mean get in other people's business. It means care about other people. It means be alert, aware, sensitive to what might be going on in someone else's life so that you can be there for them and care for them. But if you're always thinking that everyone else is supposed to care for you, then this is probably not going to be your mindset. And then to give an example of true humility, the Apostle Paul tells us about Jesus. Let this mind, this attitude, this mindset, we might say, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So then Paul tells about, describes the humility of Jesus Christ and what we would call his condescension. Philippians 2 and 5. Being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. And then I love this last phrase, even the death of the cross. Without going into a lot of detail, it's one thing to die. But to die by crucifixion was quite a humiliating experience. To hang naked, to be beat, brutally beaten, to be tortured, to be exposed to the elements, to have people come by wagging their heads, railing on you, hung between two thieves, identifying with the worst of the worst, even the death of the cross. Amen. I, I grew up singing songs, what like what condescension bringing us redemption. He made himself of no reputation. The form of a servant humbled himself, obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. So here is Jesus, who is the example of humility, of serving one another. But then the apostle Paul takes us to the result of that. Now Hebrews 12 talks about Jesus enduring the cross for the joy that was set before him. That is not his angle in Philippians chapter two. But he is saying that because of his humility, because he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, it was that posture, it was that humility that caused him, that mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, to then be exalted. Verse nine. Wherefore, God hath also highly exalted him 
and given him a name which is above every name. That at the knee of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does this mean that Jesus Christ is Lord? In the Old Testament, the Jews would not say the name of the Lord. It was so reverent. They would not say Yahweh. And when the Septuagint was written uh, by the Jews, the, the Greek Old Testament, at least 6,156 times, the unique name of Yahweh was translated Lord. That name was so sacred. And what Paul is saying to everyone there, that God has given him a name, that every knee would bow and every tongue should confess, that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, that Jesus Christ is the only God, that there is none beside him. Amen. The Jewish prophets proclaimed God's exclusive claim to his own name. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. So Jesus is given this name, Lord, uh, that belongs to God Almighty alone. Now, oneness Pentecostals understand uh, this idea, amen, this doctrine that there is one God, amen. No Jew would ever believe uh, that there is a trinity of gods, one God eternally existed in three persons. That would be heresy to them as it is to God who alone is everything. So this name, Lord, it wasn't like Jesus Christ is, is a God, like all the other small G-O-D-S gods in the Hellenistic world. He's not just a rival to Caesar. He is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is God alone. Amen. But this meant something that he's the only God of Jewish monotheism, creator and sovereign of all. Every knee shall bow. Now, Romans 14 is a chapter about Christian liberty, about not judging one another in matters of Christian liberty. Not about sound doctrine. Romans 14.10. Why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? Why do you despise him? Is what that phrase means. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For as it is written, Paul is reminding them, as it is written, and we're going to talk about where this was written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. So quit having this beam in your eye and finding this moat, this little speck of sawdust in your brother's eye. Philippians 2, Romans 14 are citations of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. I want to go back to Isaiah 42, 21 to give you where these phrases come from. They don't just come out of Paul's mind. They come out of inspiration of Almighty God. But they come out of the Old Testament. Tell you and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who had declared this from ancient times? Who had told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? 
and there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look into me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Now, when he says to the ends of the earth, that means he's not just a Jewish God. He is a God of all flesh. Amen. Amen. He worked through the Jewish people, through the seed of them to bring us Jesus Christ. But he is God of the ends of the earth. There's not a Gentile God and a, a Jewish God and an American God. Amen. He is God alone. Verse 40, 23 of chapter 45. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear or confess. God Almighty, Yahweh, Jehovah God is saying this of himself and it is not it is not wrong to say that this is said of Jesus Christ. We believe that. Now, this passage is, is a hymn, a song that would have been sung in church. And it envisions the end of time when Jesus Christ is revealed as King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation tells of this time in Revelation 17, 13, uh, that they fight against him, but they find out that he is Lord of lords and king of kings. In Revelation 19, the armies that are with God are following him on white horses, and they are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and that he should smite the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In this hymn in Philippians 2, all three realms of the universe are subject to the authority of Jesus Christ. All of the angelic beings, all human beings, and all of the underworld, every fallen angel, every being created will bow their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Angels, demons, humans. The whole universe will openly express total submission before the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's hard to fathom that people that are experiencing the judgment of God do not always repent. They don't turn from their evil ways. You've heard me say a few times around here that the greatest revival in America should be in nursing homes where people are facing imminent death. But if you said no to God for 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years or longer, what changes that human will to say, God, I'm sorry for my sins? That's why I said a while ago, we want our tender-hearted children to come to God in their youth before they have hardened their hearts against God. Pharaoh in Exodus 9, the hail and the thunders are ceased. And the Bible said he sinned more. He hardened his heart, he and his servants. The heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Neither would he let the children of Israel go. I was thinking about the book of Revelation. 
when the wrath of God is poured out. Revelation chapter 9. And I'm just giving you the highlights of Revelation 9, starting in verse 17. Talks about these, you know, all of the imagery of Revelation. A third part of men are killed by fire, by smoke, and by brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. For their powers in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were likened to serpents in their heads, and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not. They repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold, of silver and brass and stone and wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. Can you imagine that people in, in those kinds of judgments would have their hearts hardened and would not repent? Revelation 19.8 on the screens. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. I don't want to be around when this happens, I'm looking forward to the catching away of the church. We call it the rapture in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Amen. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. We have not appointed unto wrath. Amen. Revelation 19 describes wrath. 19, 16, 9 rather, 16, 9. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God. Now, this is unthinkable. Which have power over these plagues. God could have stopped it, right? God had power over these plagues. They repented not to give him glory. You may remember Romans 1. When people knew him, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful. Sounds kind of innocent, doesn't it? But it's really acknowledgement of who he is. They would not turn from their wickedness, and they would not acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and of their sores and repented not of their deeds. You know, what does it take? The rich man says, send Lazarus, let him go back and preach to my brothers. Tell them not to come to this place, for I am tormented in this flame. Father Abraham in this imagery says they have Moses and the prophets. They have a Bible. And if they won't believe the Bible, they will not believe that one rise from the dead. You would think that people under these conditions of the judgments of God, they're gnawing their teeth. They're in incredible pain. There's a God who has a power to stop everything. But they do not repent or turn from their ways. These people who are smitten by God, he will not repent. One of these days, they will fall on their knees and they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The expectation that every tongue will acknowledge 
that Jesus Christ is Lord doesn't mean that all of creation will gladly offer praise and thanksgiving to God. It's not like a worship service at church. Thank God we do that. It means to declare openly in acknowledgement. In other words, when they confess, they're forced to confess. They have no option but to do that. Amen. The God of Isaiah 45. They've raged against him. They'll be put to shame. So I want to repeat this. It doesn't mean that there's going to be this universal participation in some statement of faith or confessing Christ as their Lord, the Lord of their lives. It's an open and irrevocable admission that they have lived their lives all wrong. And their eternity will be everlasting torment away from the presence of God. But they will have to recognize that he is God of the universe. And he sits in the seat of uncontested authority. He sits on the circle of the earth. And the inhabitants of the earth are nothing to him. Amen. Every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, the big picture of this passage is that when we come to church and we worship God, and we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are changing our eternal destiny. Every time a sinner repents and turns from their sins and all of heaven rejoices and we rejoice with them when we celebrate what's with a party, when we see that conversion, that transactional experience that a sinner becomes a saint, and they confess with their tongue, they bow with their knee that Jesus Christ is Lord. The greatest thing on earth, what it saves them from and what it saves them to, that is the work of the church. Amen. Here is Jesus Christ. In those days, the Philippian Christians going through times of persecution, hard times, prison epistle. But here it is, Paul says, it is Jesus Christ who was crucified on a Roman cross, not Caesar, who was seated on a Roman throne, who will rule forever and ever and ever. And though you may be in a season and time and difficulty and pain in your life, you have the greatest hope of all the world that you have chosen to bow to him now. Praise God. Praise God. Here are Christians in Philippi that are kind of translated from earth to heaven. They're seeing the scene of the end. They're being taken out of this nasty now and now to that sweet by and by. They're seeing what will be on that day when they confess and they bow their knee gladly to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And all the harsh realities of hell will be averted because they bow to him now and they will not be forced to bow to him then. I look forward to the day that with all the saints of God that we bow our knee and we confess with our tongue that when I was eight years old, I said, Jesus Christ is Lord. So my message to you tonight is very simple. Bow to him now. 
Whenever you feel like his will is in conflict with yours, he is not going to change his will, change yours. When he's calling you to a commitment that is difficult, bow to him now. God is not just a demanding authoritarian. He loves us. He gave himself for us. He condescended. He paid the ultimate price as a form of a servant. So now he is highly exalted and he deserves our life and he deserves our praise. God chastens those he loves, but in time now he doesn't force you, doesn't force us to bow to him. Just like the people in Revelation that I described, just like the people I refer to in our culture who have lived their whole lives soon to leave this life. But they leave not confessing, not bowing. In our culture, we don't bow very much. And I'm not asking you to bow or to pray, kneeling always. But I am calling you, and I'm calling myself, to make sure in my life, make sure in your life, decision by decision, day by day, challenge to your will by challenge to your will, that you bow to him now. If you're able, please stand. There are numerous Old Testament scriptures about not bowing to the gods of this world. Let me take the time to read through them in detail, but Leviticus 26. You shall not set up any image of stone in your land to bow down to it. Deuteronomy 5. Do not bow down thyself to them. Joshua, you don't bow yourself to them. There are lots of gods that they would face in their world, but we do not bow to the gods of this world. Amen? We do not bow to a woke culture. We do not bow to pagan practices. We do not bow our lives to the filth of this world, that we would become servants to sin. Amen? The Lord gave us, and I, and I will not go into any detail about this, several rounds of authority that he instituted, spiritual authority or in the church, domestic authority in the home, civil authority, the law, corporate authority at work. All of these are in the Bible, Ephesians. Other places, of course. And God tests our submission to him by our submission to these other entities that he established. All authorities of God, Romans 13 says. We don't bow our will to anything that is against the will of God. But even when it is not easy, We bow to him now.